0: Welcome to the Firehouse Roundtable Podcast, brought to you by the Ventura Fire Foundation. My name's Peter McKenzie. I'm one of the hosts. I'm a retired fire captain with the City of Ventura Fire Department. And I'm Jason Kay. I'm an active fire captain also with the Ventura Fire Department. And we are excited that you are going to spend some time with us at the kitchen table, learning about firehouse issues that we're trying to bring awareness to.
1: Thanks for joining us as we discuss the issues of being a firefighter, both on and off duty, and how it affects us.
0: Let's get right to it. All right. Welcome to another episode of the Firehouse Roundtable. How are you doing, Jason?
1: I am sick. You can probably hear it in my voice, but uh, that's okay. We're going to get through this podcast and uh, I'll do the best I can. But uh, I'm looking forward to
0: today's podcast. Uh, Lizanne is going to be on here. I know that you have a relationship with her. I, in my other life, the Accidental Landlord podcast, she was a guest on that show. She's actually an accomplished real estate investor, in addition to what we're going to talk about today. But yeah, that's how I kind of connected with her, and just randomly, I was my father was in the in the Marine Corps, and I was technically a military brat for a little bit, period of time. But uh, I was born on Camp Pendleton, and we do some talking about Camp Pendleton. And I understand you were at Camp Pendleton. So what what were you doing down there, Jason?
1: Yeah. Uh, just randomly, just a few days ago, we were visiting uh, one of my son's friends at Camp Pendleton, and he is a mechanic on the Ospreys, which is uh, really cool. Those are those plane slash helicopters where the, the rotors rotate down, and they can hover like a helicopter, and they can fly forward like an airplane. So, that was kind of a once-in-a-lifetime thing I got to Climb through one and in one, and nobody else. Nobody else was there because it was a weekend. And yeah, that was fun. That was something different that I had never done before. And just going on to a military base and seeing how giant Camp Pendleton is, man, that that is a city in itself.
0: Yeah, that's so cool. Now, are the mechanics qualified to fly them?
1: No. In fact, there's three or four different uh, kinds of mechanics. So, you have um, the ones who just work on the hydraulics and then you have the ones who work on the metal mm. and and that's completely different than the pilots. But as um, I learned, the pilots are usually really cool to the mechanics because they like their planes to stay in the air. So, they treat each other really well and it works out yeah. good. Yeah.
0: Because I mean, I know when you, if, if, on like smaller planes, when you work on them, a lot of times you got to go fly them and test them out and make sure that everything's working right, which I'm sure they have a procedure for that in the military. Anyway, we're getting sidetracked, but let's get Lizanne on the show. I'm excited for the conversation and let's get right into it.
2: All right, Lizanne, welcome to the show. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's definitely a pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, I've been looking forward to this conversation because there's some correlations, I think, before between what you're an expert in and, and what the work we're trying to do at the foundation. But before we do that, why don't you take a minute or two to tell our listeners a little bit about you?
2: Yeah, I'm probably a little different from some of the guests that you've heard on the podcast before. I happen to be a military spouse. My husband is active duty Marine Corps, has been serving for 22 years now. And I've been with him through all of that as either the girlfriend and wife uh, we have five kids together. We've done six military moves, seven deployments. Uh, so we've lived in a lot of different places and been through a lot of different things. But I'm really excited to talk about the, the overlap and the connection that I see between military families and first responder families. Because for the past almost a decade now, I've been focusing on supporting military families through the common stressors of military life, uh, frequent challenges, and areas where people often kind of fall between the gaps because there aren't huge resources out there supporting those everyday challenges and and difficult moments.
0: Yeah, uh, I'm excited. And just the interest of full disclosure, the the way we came across you is from my other podcast about real estate, because you're also somewhat of a real estate investor, which is awesome. But when we were chatting about before that show, and you were telling me what you did, I was like, this is perfect for our foundation and the struggle that the families have with the fire department schedule, so I'm, I'm glad we were able to circle back around and really dive into the meat of that. But so it, you have a blog called The Season Spouse, and it looks like you wrote multiple books on these topics, right? Do you want to chat a little bit about that? Or
2: sure thing. I started the blog in 2016, initially just to support spouses in our unit at the time, which was in California. We were stationed at Camp Pendleton. My husband was going through his sixth deployment. And for me, it was becoming a little bit more commonplace at that point. It was his first non-combat deployment. So I was Mm. pretty excited about that. And other spouses were going through it, you know, for the first time, first time with kids, dealing with lack of communication and all the challenges that come with being separated from your spouse for an undefined amount of time. So I was just creating resources and support to help them in that journey. And it very quickly became popular with military spouses across the country and, um, has led to several books. I wrote my first book while we were stationed overseas in Spain, wrote my second book for families going through deployment. And then my third one was just published last year. It's called Open When Letters of Encouragement for Military Spouses. And it provides encouraging messages to get them through those ups and downs of military life, which I think we'll see some overlap with the first responder families as well.
0: Yeah. I want to, I want to frame the conversation a little bit, but before we do that, I don't know if I shared this with you before, but I was born on Camp Pendleton and my dad was Marine. So oh, that's exciting. Definite, definite connection to the Marine Corps and Oceanside. So, so our spouses and their struggles aren't, they're not identical to the military. Cause I think the, you know, what makes the military unique is when they go, they go and they're gone for what, eight months, a year or less, mm-hmm. whatever they go for. It's a full extended period of time. Fire department's a little different. There's a couple of things that we can kind of frame out for you. One is when you get deployed on a fire or, or an emergency, like, you know, we had the mudslides in Montecito or, or these big wildfires mm-hmm. that break out. So guys will typically leave for, you know, it could be a week. It could be three weeks. And it's typically not more than 21 days. They put a cap on it and then you have to come back for a certain amount of time before you can go back again. But it's shorter periods of time so that the length is not the same. And then the other thing that is a struggle is and I don't know if this is similar to to the military or not is when the firefighter goes to the station they are gone. It's typically yeah in our case 48 hours you know is the first is a shift but in reality you end up working you know they'll keep you for another one and you know you could be gone for easily for 3 or 4 days but it's consistent so it happens all the time. So I would say when I first started at the fire department the schedule allows you to be gone one third of the time. But in reality, it's more like a half, one half of the time. So that puts a strain on the, on the families back at home. Sure. But anyway, just wanted to like identify some of the differences. Jason, do you want to chime in here and like expand on that? Or just so she has a good understanding of kind of what we're talking about. Sure. I I guess my first
1: question to Lizanne is um, what is a typical schedule? If you're not on deployment for the Marines, What, what does that look like? So just, just for our listeners, when I asked that question, she just kind of leaned back and smiled and was like, Oh, I don't even know where to go with this one. There's probably a million different answers you could give depending on all that stuff you just said. So go ahead, I'll let you expand on it a little bit.
2: Sure, it's going to vary greatly. Um, Each branch is different and even different ranks uh, within, you know, even stationed at the exact same base in the same unit, people have different responsibilities and jobs. So one of the challenges is that there's not a predictable schedule. There's not uh, a lot of certainty in military life. So it's really hard to find a normal. And I'm sure that that's something that your families struggle with a bit too, even knowing that there's shift work and maybe there's certain days circled on the calendar for shifts that, you know, when they're called up, they're, they're called up and you have to take things over and there's nothing you can do about it. So uh, let's say it's a unit that's preparing for deployment. There may be scheduled blocks of training time on the calendar. Where the service member is going out to the field for, you know, this week and then they come back and they sleep at home. Or maybe they're going out on the ship for Marines can go to the field or to the ship. Um, they might go out on the ship for two weeks and then come home for two weeks and then go out for a month and then come home for a month. And that's all not considered deployment. That's considered training and preparing. Uh, and then there's tons of times that they go away for classes that might be located on the other side of the country and the class could be a few weeks long, or uh, even up to two or three months long, the family doesn't move with them. So they just kind of go and do what they need to do and live in a dorm or or live in a cheap hotel that's near where the class is, and then they can return and be with the family. So I'm assuming that a lot of that stress and uncertainty and lack of control is something that these first responder families would really relate to well about military life.
1: Yeah, the lack of control of the schedule, and the stress of the phone call you make to your wife and go, hey, I know I'm supposed to be home in like an hour and I'm not coming home today. So that's real relatable, I think, on both sides of this. You said that your husband was on, was it six deployments? Uh, seven now. Seven. Is he gone right now?
2: No, but we are in an odd situation right now that we call geobatching. He's a geographic bachelor because he's in his final year of active duty military and the kids and I have moved on ahead to our forever home, our retirement home, if you will. And so that means I'm living without him for a few more months until he can retire and move in with us.
1: Okay. Well, that's an exciting time of your guys' life. That's really cool. Um, so, when it comes to the schedule specifically, since we're kind of on that topic, can you tell me, are you more worried in the military spouse? Are you more worried about uh, his safety? Or are you more worried about when you're going to get to see him next? Or is it just kind of all all in one all the time? And how often do you get to Hmm. talk to him or see him when when he's gone?
2: Yeah. And again, that has changed so much. Um, His earlier deployments when we were still dating and not married uh, was at the very beginning of the Iraq War. He joined the Marine Corps just before September 11th in 2001. And so those first few years of boot camp and training and going to Iraq, he was one of the first units to cross the border in 2003. Mm-hmm. And uh, he returned three times to Iraq. So obviously during that time, huge amounts of stress, uh, huge communication challenges, did not know when I'd hear from him again or how I'd hear from him, crazy unpredictability. And thankfully, things are much more advanced technologically. Even when people are deploying to the Middle East now, there's a lot more communication options In some places, service members have Wi-Fi. They can do video chats. I mean, there's a lot of possibilities. But if you're on a ship or if you're on a submarine, you still do not have consistent uh, internet access and phone calls. So communication plays a huge role in military life. And I think that does impact the quality of the relationship, the quality of the marriage. Um, The less predictability and certainty that you have about your communication options, I think just the greater the stress is in your relationship. Because like you said, you don't know when you'll hear from them again, or how to get a hold of them. And that is extremely limiting from a spouse's perspective.
1: First of all, let me back up. It's kind of funny. I was hired by the fire department two weeks before 9-11. So I can kind of relate there. But when did you guys have kids? When did you get married after he started his career with the military and then kind of get into as a spouse, how you dealt with some of that unpredictability with your family while you were home and he was away?
2: Yeah, because it is a big difference. I feel like there's been stages of our life where we've handled things in different ways. Um, I started dating him before the military. We dated for about a year before he decided to join the Marines, partially as a forward looking, you know, supportive family, do what I need to do to, to get married and take that next step. So he did that while I was in college. And then I was still in college. The Iraq war was happening. He was stationed over in 29 Palms, California, which is a very undesirable duty station. (laughs) So I did not join him. Um, he deployed several times within the next five years. And we had a very long dating timeline, especially for the military community. We dated a total of seven years before we were married. Uh, but eventually we finally got married in 2007. And we immediately had our first child and immediately got orders to our next duty station in North Carolina. Uh, He deployed twice out of there. That was to Afghanistan those times. And so I had a baby right before one of the Afghanistan deployments. And then I had a baby during his next Afghanistan deployment. And then at that point, he was able to do a non-deployable station overseas in Spain for three years. So we all lived together in Spain with our three young children, had a fourth child over there. And then we were stationed in California for five years. He did deploy two more times out of Camp Pendleton, California. And uh, at that point, I had four young kids. I was trying to start my writing business. And then at that point, he has not deployed since. So we've had a few years of stability and uh, we moved one final time to Mississippi. And then This is our our last move in Pennsylvania now. So we've just made a giant circle. Really,
1: And when it comes to the spouses, I feel like that's very relatable because you guys obviously had longer periods, like Peter and you were talking about earlier, between when he was home and when he was away. What was some of the interaction to let him back? This is going to sound wrong, but to let him back in the house and into the fold when he would come back or even Mm -hmm. be away, those transformations, I know our, our wives deal with it a lot, our spouses, because we come home once a week and we go, Hey, I'm here now. This is what life is going to look like. Okay, I'm gone. Now you got to do it on your own. So can you talk about kind of how even in longer terms, I'm sure it's very relatable with us as well to talk about how the spouse's role changes and how you kind of integrate him back into your life and your family's life and then have to deal with him going away, rules changing or things like that.
2: Absolutely. I'm really glad that you asked that because it is a a skill that is needed in a military marriage, and it's not something that's inherently obvious. It's something that you kind of have to learn through trial and error. And I hope maybe there's some training for firefighter spouses and for first responder families to expect this, but there does not seem to be that training for military families. It's just a learn as you go experience. So, yes, I think one of the huge challenges of the lifestyle is the constant coming and going. Uh, Like I mentioned, deployments might be on a calendar and they might be somewhat predictable for military families, but not always. There's some people that get really short notice, but it's really the trainings and the workups that are, in my opinion, much more destabilizing that one week on two weeks back, one week gone two weeks home, that kind of a schedule is really rough for a family because as you mentioned, the spouse in some moments is shouldering 100% of the burdens at home and any single emergency that comes up or doctor's appointment or whatever, the spouse has to handle that. And then suddenly the, the active duty member or the firefighter is home and they are expected to just have a role in the family that they aren't taking on 100% of the time. And especially during those times where we had kind of back-to-back deployments, military members often do two deployments in a three-year period. And uh, it sounds like there's kind of a year in between, but with trainings and all, it's not really a stable year home. And it kind of feels like you never give back those responsibilities. You've taken on so much, and there's never really a chance for the spouse to hand over those tasks And so we got into years where I just handled 100% of the bedtime routine, 100% of the meals, 100% of the bath time, because I was the stable default parent, the solo parent. And I'm sure there's many firefighter spouses who are like raising their hand and nodding. (laughs) So it's part of the lifestyle. But when they do come home from deployment, I had to learn to actively take a step back and make some room for him and not tell him, this is how you do the diapers, this is how you do the feeding, this is how we do this, because he needs to have his own role in taking care of his own children. And he needs to learn dad's style of doing bath time and doing bedtime and playing around and whatever. And that might not be my style, but I need to make space for that to happen.
0: That's so interesting that you say that because... I was under the assumption that it must be way harder to have your spouse gone for eight months or a year than it is to have them gone for a week. But to hear you say that the constant like stop, start, stop, start of like the lead up to it, that is in essence how the fire department works. Like, and it's not even a week on week off. It's like two days, four days, five days, seven days, like one day, three days. Like if there's no rhyme or reason to it, but I bet you that makes some spouses feel good that this actually is really hard. And cause it makes total sense. Like if you're gone for eight months, you're in a routine, you know, what's coming, you know, you're on your own, you know how to, how to navigate and handle that. But if you're constantly stopping and starting, yeah, that's way more hectic and, and less predictable um there's two things you'd said that I want to talk about one I know coming from the other side of this I retired from the fire department gosh almost two years ago now coming back and re-entering into my family was incredibly difficult Mm -hmm. like didn't didn't see it coming at all like had no idea this was going to be a thing yet it was a thing and I felt like I was like disrupting my family and like my oldest daughter was like having some like weird thing with me because I was messing her role that she had while I was gone. Cause she was the oldest um. daughter and she had responsibilities in the house that now I was taking unbeknownst to me. So that's, I, I get that that's difficult, but you did say something about training. Like we need training for this and I know the military doesn't train for it. And I hope the fire department does. First off, they don't. Right. And uh, (laughs) they absolutely don't. But they should. And that's maybe something that that the foundation can work on. But um, this brings up what happens when you retire in the military? Because I have some some ideas and I've heard some things. Does the military prepare their people for retirement? Is there some sort of reentry training or like maybe it's when they come back from deployment what What does that look like in the military world?
2: Yeah, that's a good question, and I'm curious to hear what it's like on the firefighter side so um, if you do a full let's say 20 years is the average uh, career for retirement, although some people do a little bit shorter and some people can go up to 30 plus, depending on their situation. If you've done a full career, yes, there are transition programs for service members to get out of the military. A lot of that is employment based because I'm not sure what your retirement plans are and how you know disability might or might not work for the fire department. But most service members, if they're getting out at 40 years old, they're expecting to work somewhere. You know, It might not be a full-time job or, you know, the highest paying job, but they are expecting to be employed. So a lot of transition resources do focus on that retirement aspect. Um, yes, they also talk about finances and um, deciding where to live and, and home ownership and, and a broad spectrum of things. But for a lot of the branches, it's like a one-week training You can go multiple times. They encourage you to start going, thinking about it, you know, two years before your retirement date so that you can constantly make those decisions and reevaluate. But a lot of people put it off or do it, you know, just in the months before they're retiring. And honestly, there are a lot of people out there talking about the stress of the transition process on the entire family, because most of the resources focus just on the active duty service member, the military member. And... They forget that the entire family is going through a transition. So the children might be changing schools or moving again, or maybe not. Maybe they're stabilizing in the final duty station. The spouse might be looking for new work. Uh, Every member of the family is suffering a bit of an identity crisis of this was our life. This was our mission. The entire family was focused on supporting this mission And now if you take that mission away, what are we doing? What are you know, we have this time, we have this energy, but what are what brings us together now and what should we be looking forward to in the future? So it's obviously an exciting and a and a moment that people look forward to, but it's also incredibly stressful. And as a family who's going through that right now, I could say there's definitely a lot of ups and downs of that transition process.
0: I love listening to your story because you're talking about a different world that but it's so similar. Uh first off, I will say the fire department does absolutely nothing for <laughs> for retirement or zero. And I having just gone through it, it's a huge blind spot. During this whole thing, like there's some military reserve people in the in the fire department and that's where I've heard, yeah, no, when you get back from a deployment, there's this or when you transition out of that, there's this class. I didn't know the extent of it, but I was like, Oh, the military has it all together. We need to copy that basically and and give some our, our guys some tools. But obviously it sounds like the military has some, some room for improvement as well, but there always is. Yeah. The fact that that whole like identity crisis that you're talking about and how it actually affects the family just as much as the person that's leaving, that's very insightful. Cause I personally experienced when I left the fire department, you're not a firefighter anymore. It's a, it's a, the change it's like a big like this is what I did for all these years and now I don't do that and I don't identify in the same way even though it's not like I'm losing all that identity that I had but in some ways you are so that that can be challenging but speak to how that's challenging for the families because I never related that that the families were struggling with it just as much as the, as the person leaving what, what are you seeing out there and, and I mean I'm assuming some of this is going on as we speak in your own life as well
2: Yeah. And I think maybe in military families, the uh, difficulties are exacerbated by the fact that we spend so much of the military career living in a fairly isolated community. You know, you get stationed at a new military base every few years. And so you're constantly uprooting your whole family, and then plugging into a new location. Maybe you live on base, maybe you don't, you know, some people are more involved in the off-base civilian community than others. But either way, you don't have very deep roots anywhere, which means you're constantly rebuilding your support network every two to three years. So when you do that final move after retirement, most people, uh, I guess you could stay near a military base and and be in a military-centric town or community, but a lot of people move closer to where their relatives are or back home or to a completely new location where they have new employment or something like that but it's not a military centric community and so for the first time you're kind of looking around like so what what is the grocery store called if i'm not going on base or you know my kids are so used to having neighbors that we could walk to their homes on base and if you're no longer in that closed military base community you know where do they find friends whose houses are we going to go to so it's just those little moments of kind of taking that community away and making sure that you have your own identity and your own strengths to fall back on people that invest their identity too heavily into the military community seem to be the ones that struggle the most with that transition. If that's all your life has been, and then you take that away, it's a giant hole. But if your life has been, you know, work and volunteering and friendships and hobbies and all these other things, well, then you have that to fall back on instead. So it depends on how well the family has prepared themselves, I think, for the situation.
0: That's interesting you say that, because that is the same advice that we've had uh, we've had mental health experts on the on the show as well, mm-hmm. and their number one thing is like maintain an identity separate of the fire department, and then when you retire, you lean on it it's a support group of of a type anyhow, I want to talk about because I was on your website earlier, and you definitely have a focus on the mental health of the spouses in the military, and I want to dig in on that like what Can our spouses and it doesn't necessarily just wives because there's there's female firefighters as well, just like in the military. Mm -hmm. What can the spouses do? Like, what are the things you're seeing? What are the issues, I guess? And then what are some like common sense solutions that that can help?
2: Yeah, great question. Um, I think one thing that it took me a little while to learn is that you as an individual have to be very proactive in building your own support system. And you need to build that supportive network before you need it. So unfortunately, in the military community, we have a lot of young wives or girlfriends or spouses that they wait until the service member leaves. And then they're looking around the first week of deployment saying, so I need friends. (laughs) Who wants to be my friend? And unfortunately, they don't have any phone numbers. They don't know their neighbors. You know, they don't have an investment in the local community and they have to sort of build all of that from the ground up while their service member is gone. And it's, it's exhausting. It's really difficult. And I assume that there's some overlap there with the firefighter community that you never know when an emergency is going to happen. You never know when your spouse might be away for more than three days at a time. And so it's really essential to build that support network while you can on the days when they are around to stay home with the kids and let you go out and join a club or a hobby or, you know, have a group of friends get together I learned to be almost aggressive in asking neighbors and friends for phone numbers. It's like, oh, I met a new mom at the park. Yeah, I'm going to get your phone number so that if I need to text you, if our kids are in the same class and something happens, at least I've got, you know, somebody's contact that I can say, hey, I won't be pick pickup today. Can you pick up my kid instead? Or I locked myself out of the house. Can you help me out? Um, you have to have those numbers saved because who are you going to call in case of an emergency? Um, so definitely the importance of being proactive.
1: One of the things that's relatable that you said uh, just now was, it, it, you didn't say this specifically, but this is this is the implication. It's really cool to date a military person. It's really cool to date a firefighter. And then when it gets serious and uh, you guys get married or you make a commitment towards each other and now that person's not there or they're leaving all the time or they can't, you know, be, be available all the time for their relationship. All of a sudden, it becomes a lot less cool. I think military wives uh, also, along with firefighter wives um, and spouses, mm-hmm. there's such a need for independence. If you're super dependent on the other person, they're just not going to be around very much. That's just the life that we've both chosen on each side of this. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, that's very relatable to me, too. And then building a support network early. I think that's great. Well, That's one of the things our foundation is trying to do is have events for everybody to get to know everybody early on. And then some of the training, uh, we don't have any through the fire department, but that's one of the focuses of our foundation too, is give the spouses some training and some what to expect. And the earlier you start that, the better, because yeah. the, more, the more realistic that's going to be. One of the areas that would be good for us to focus on, Peter, I know you have investment in this, is some transition towards retirement. What do we do from here? What do your finances look from here? you know, just kind of some education on that aspect. So anyway, I'm just going to throw in my comments there. And, and I got, I'm feverishly writing notes for the foundation to work on later on. So I appreciate all that.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, this has been super helpful. Um, Lizanne, you mentioned self-care and how important that is. Let, let's get into that. Cause that's, uh, we're talking about for sure. Hey, this is Joe Booth from the Ventura Fire Foundation. To learn more about the foundation and our programs, visit our website at www.venturafirefoundation.org. 100% of our funding comes from generous donors. If you like what we're doing, I encourage you to become a donor. It's very easy. Just go to our website, again that's venturafirefoundation.org, and click the red Donate button at the top. Whether it's $5 or $5,000. Every donation helps ensure local firefighters thrive.
2: Early in my husband's career, when I would hear that term self-care, I'll be honest, like from a women's perspective, it's usually mentioned in the same sentence with like spa treatments or going shopping or getting your nails done. And that really didn't relate to me. And it wasn't realistic at that part of my life. I had little babies and toddlers and no one to watch them. So the concept of taking a spa day was just not reachable to me. So I was like, well, I guess self-care is not for me. Maybe, you know, maybe a couple years from now, I'll get into that kind of thing. <laughs> and what I had to learn is that it's so much more than that. Self-care is really just prioritizing yourself, taking care of your own needs before you can meet the needs of others. It's kind of like that. Analogy when you go on an airplane and they say, you know, make sure you put on your own oxygen mask before you help little ones. You'd think inherently that you need to take care of the toddler's mask first. But realistically, if you're the one that passes out, you won't be putting that toddler's air mask on anyway. So you have to take care of yourself. And I've learned that I can't give what I don't have. So just having your basic needs met, rest, you know, eating healthy, um, you know, having ways that you can de-stress. And for me, self-care has become sort of these little moments throughout the day, things that I could do for five minutes, 10 minutes that don't take a lot of time. They don't take a lot of money. Um, it's just a little moment or a little ritual, but it keeps me grounded. It gives me an element of control in a world that has very much out of my control. And it is something that I can do whether or not my kids are around and whether or not I have that strong support network at the time.
0: A couple things I want to chat about with that for starters, like the whole concept of you have to take care of yourself first, that felt incredibly selfish to me when I first started down that journey. And and honestly, I, like, I really started down that journey after I left the fire department because I had like the mental clarity and the time, but it felt wrong. And I think that was mm-hmm. just from like being a parent and for so long and sacrificing and doing everything for your kids, which in hindsight was a huge mistake. Like I should have taken better care of myself years ago, because it will help me be a better, a better dad, a better spouse, a better everything. But it just is so counterintuitive until you like, take the time to educate yourself and and actually like flip your mindset that no, you need to be doing these things. So you can be better for your team, for your Mm -hmm. kids, all that other stuff.
1: I was just thinking about some of the old uh, self-care, the last few people that we've talked to Again, I'll bring that same subject up and how important that is. And a lot of times it's on the firefighter's side. We keep hearing, you guys need to take time to de-stress. Um, you don't want to hold the, the horrible stuff that you see. You don't want to hold that in. And, you know, I relate it back to this is both sides. There's a lot of care out there for the, the PTSD side of the, of the firefighter. And we're really trying to focus on the spouse side as well, or the family all around, and say those people need self care as much as we do, if not more, because they're the ones who, when we get home, we have a quote unquote day off, and the spouse still is doing the same thing. They still have the kids. They still are expected to do their daily routines, and you know a lot of them work, so they're they're not necessarily having a day off when we have a day off. So I would just reiterate what you said. Again, we hear it over and over, but you got to take some action, whatever it is for yourself that, that you find. Um, do you have some examples that that work for you or that you would say are a good thing for some of the spouses specifically to try for self-care? Because my wife would say the same thing. I don't have time. I don't have the energy to go do a spa day, but I may want to go take a hike or I may want to work out or whatever it is for that person.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important to kind of have a few different options so, um, in my book, I even break them into time categories of, you know, here's something that I can do in self-care in five minutes. I can make myself a cup of tea. And for me, that's just that kind of ritualistic repeated motion that forces you to stop whatever else you're doing and to sit and enjoy it. It could be coffee also just for me, it's tea. <laughs> um, but taking that moment of like, this is something I need. And I'm going to take five minutes out of my day to give it to myself because I deserve that and I need it. But for, you know, 10 minutes, it could be petting your dog. It could be walking to get the mail, walking around the block, you know, watering plants. If it's just like something that you have to stop the other busyness of your day to do a few moments of something that calms you and relaxes you, that's super important. And then if you have longer time, you know, half an hour or so, read a book, take a bath, all of those, like, I think more traditional Self care messages, um, those are important too. And I think people should carve out, you know, a half an hour or an hour here and there throughout the week, at least once a week, have something that you do for an hour that you look forward to. And when you mentioned trauma and, and holding trauma in, I think that is a big part of the self care puzzle because spouses can experience that secondary trauma. Obviously, I haven't seen what my husband has seen. A firefighter spouse hasn't been you know, in the buildings and facing the fire the way their spouse is, but they do hold a lot of that stress and a lot of that concern and that worry, and it doesn't just magically dissolve and go away. And there's all those years worth of worry and fear and doubt and uncertainty that you have to have a way to lift that off of your shoulders, out of your body, off of your soul, however you want to envision it, but there needs to be a detoxing way that works for you. And everyone's going to have a different answer for themselves, whether that's a religious ritual or, you know, yoga and meditating, or some of the quick things that I just mentioned, but you need to have your own methods that are going to help you bring you back to your your center and a safer, cleaner, de-stressed place.
0: I've seen in, in our world, some, not just spouses, but even the firefighters themselves, they start to like harbor a lot of animosity towards the fire department for taking them away from their family for doing all these things that are causing all these problems. Do you see that in the military world? Like, do do spouses start to hate the military and like want nothing more than to get out of it? Or what what are you seeing? And and what are what are some ways to help with that?
2: Yeah, that's a very honest question, and I appreciate it. So I'm going to give you an honest answer that yes, I think depending on the situation, there is a huge potential for both the service member and the spouse to build up quite a bit of resentment. And typically yes, that resentment is because of the military. It's this larger entity that really does control our lives. It tells us where to live, when to go there, you know, when they're going to be gone, and I get no say really in in any of that. So, um being destabilized by something that is so beyond your control uh, definitely causes a lot of frustration. Uh, People don't get their first choice duty station. They have to move farther away from family than they ever intended to. They have to take kids away from their grandparents. And a lot of spouses sacrifice meaningful careers to follow their service member and and live where they live. Um, Hopefully that's not quite as prevalent in the firefighter community, but I assume that that default parent solo parenting situation would really inhibit a lot of career options. And so- yeah, over time, it can build up a lot of resentment. Um, I think in the earlier years of the military that they did not expect spouses to be employed. The military still operates on a very 1950s kind of structure, <laughs> assuming that there's a spouse to stay at home full-time with children. And they also expect that they are fueled by patriotism and pride. And while there is certainly very strong elements of that in myself, in almost every military family I know, uh, patriotism alone does not pay the bills and and take care of the family and nurture the marriage. So there has to be more than that. And when people feel that their needs are not being met, then yeah, there's a lot of opportunity for anger that probably is initially directed at the military, but I can be as angry as I want at the military all day long and the military is not going to change. So that anger very quickly shifts to the next closest person, which is my spouse. And so a lot of military families deal with resentment, anger, frustration, however you want to name it, that builds up in the marriage.
0: What helps cope with that? Because a lot of this stuff, similar stuff happens in the fire service. Same, same idea. I guess, I don't know, not to get personal, but how do you cope with that? Or or how do you suggest other people cope with that?
2: Yeah, I think a lot of it is being honest with your service member, uh, or with your spouse, you know, and just not internalizing all of it, not thinking that I need to be big enough to just swallow it all and shove it down for years and years and years, because that's not going to help anyone being honest in the appropriate moment to say that, you know, uh, there was one move where we went through that it was a very short notice move. Neither one of us had anticipated it. And it, it was just a real sudden uprooting of our family. And I told my husband at the time that, you know, I'm very excited for you. I know this is a great opportunity. I'm proud of this offer that you received. However, I'm going to reserve the right for the next few weeks to be pretty frustrated by all this turmoil, all this stress. And I can feel both things at once, right? So if I can be honest with him that, you know, on the one hand, yeah, honey, really proud of what you're doing and and fully support your career. But on the other hand, gee whiz, this is difficult for our family, you know, Being able to voice both of those, I think is really healthy and helpful for the relationship. And then being able to receive the same from him that, you know, he also feels a lot of doubt and and guilt and frustration and, you know, wondering, did I do the right thing? Am I putting my family through too much? So being able to be a sounding board that he can voice his frustration when he has a bad day and be frustrated with the military where I'm not going to throw it right back at him like, you knew what you signed up for (laughs) because we all hate hearing that.
0: So I know that when I was at the fire department and I got the phone call or the text that you're not going home for 2 days or you're getting mandated into a 96 hour shift I was upset like I, and I knew that I had to call my wife and tell her hey I'm not coming home and she was upset and I'm just as upset as she is but I'm here trying to justify why this is happening and and being like not upset with her you know like at the same time as her but internally I'm just as frustrated that I don't get to go home and I got to do this. And there are there is an element in the fire department that says, you knew what you signed up for, suck it up. This is the life <laughs> of a firefighter. And I hated that. And, I, mm-hmm. and that's not fair to the families either, I think, because anyhow. But just quick comment on what you're saying.
1: The tactic that you have and that you're talking, um, you have to be so gentle between being supportive of your spouse and still being able to go man, this is a lot. Like, yes, I support you. I support what we're doing as a family, but this is definitely going to impact our home life. And, and you both have to be able to look at that and say, we support each other through this. It's not necessarily all good and and easy, but at the same time, you know, we're going to make it through or be able to look at each other and go, maybe this isn't the right time for this and be able to be supportive without, without, um, necessarily saying yes to everything for your husband or spouse. And maybe that's less, less appropriate to the military side of things. I don't think, I I don't think you have that much option. No, not a lot. I I thought that resonated with our, with our choices.
2: I think that same team attitude though, is so important that it's really important to remember that it's not, you know, me versus the military or me versus my husband's career, but it's really us together together facing this life in whatever way that we need to in the moment and not having that competition that I think it's so easy to sink into whose day was worse, who mm-hmm. had it harder. Um, you know, just because one person had a bad day, they do not have a monopoly on, you know, tragedy or pain or whatever. Yes, um, Both of you are allowed to have a bad day and both of you face different challenges and probably neither one of you wants to swap places if we're being honest. And my husband told me that one time, when he was in a combat situation in Afghanistan and I was just home with little toddlers and neither one of us absolutely wanted to be in the other's place. And we were like, well, we're both equipped for where the places where we are and we're doing what the skills that we have. So I guess, I guess we're doing it right. Um, but I think it's so natural to get into that combative competition which is not helpful at all to the marriage. And it's so helpful to remember that, you know, you are on the same team. This is a mission that you're doing together, whether or not you both signed up for it simultaneously or with full knowledge or whatever, that like it or not, your marriage has placed you in this place to face this challenge together. And there are a lot of moments where, especially when he's preparing for a combat situation, he is completely mission focused and he's looking at the mission and I'm looking at the family, I'm looking in the opposite direction and all the things that need to be taken care of, or the ways that it's affecting our lives. And when you're not looking in the same direction, it's going to naturally cause that space and that gap in your marriage that, you know, you're not on the same page, you're not going in the same direction, you're inherently going in opposite directions. So you have to be very intentional and conscious about how do we bring our focus back together um, without detracting from the mission or from... The family. So it's it's kind of a balancing act.
0: Yeah, it sounds like you're, you're an expert in this arena. I mean, obviously, <laughs> you have a community, you've written books. Um, I want to talk about the children. So like, arguably, the spouses have a hard time. But really, the people who I don't want to say who are innocent, um, but mm-hmm. they have even less choice are your kids. And I saw on your website as well that you have a fair amount of focus on the children. And this is actually something that we've had active conversations on the foundation board about is, we talk a lot about the firefighter and the mental health of the firefighter. We talk a lot about the spouse, but there's a very little conversation about the kids and mm-hmm. what their struggle is. And I'm just curious from your perspective, like, how does all this affect the children and what, what are you seeing, you know, works to help them cope better with it?
2: Yeah. And it definitely does impact kids. Um, every family, every child is going to be, hit in different ways, but they all sort of bear some burden of this lifestyle, right? And that's something that they didn't volunteer for and was placed on them, usually at birth. Um, I think maybe one advantage that military kids have over firefighter kids is, again, a built-in community. So my kids have mostly lived in base housing on a military base. Every single person in that neighborhood was a military kid. They go to schools that were either you know majority military kids or at least half so people have a common vernacular of talking about deployments or oh where's your dad mine's in afghanistan oh mine's in okinawa oh we were in okinawa once you know like they just throw around these terms that are not normal to probably other kids and i i wonder if you know firefighter kids maybe have a lot more isolation that way they don't have a group that they can touch base with and and throw around the, those terms and talk about those stressors so one of the things that's been helpful for military kids, especially in communities where they're not attending a military school is to have kind of like a military kid lunch or a, a counselor that comes in occasionally to gather up those kids and give them an opportunity during lunch or after school or through a club or something to just kind of talk to other kids that are in the same place that they are. Maybe they do a craft together. Maybe they have a snack or, you know, make cards for veterans or it doesn't have to be an intentional Activity, but the the main goal is to give them opportunity to express some of those emotions and learn healthy ways of processing the stress and the trauma of this lifestyle.
0: Yeah, I didn't think of that. So, like the whole there's this whole thing that the reasons firefighters struggle when they retire is because they have this ready-made social network when they're at the fire department, and they go. I mean, the firefighters go through a lot of bad things, and I would argue the military has worse things, Um, but They debrief with each other. They sit around, drink coffee. They 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 have somebody to talk to. But once they leave, that goes away, Mm -hmm. and then we see a lot of the mental health issues start to like rear their heads. But Mm -hmm. I didn't equate that to military kids because you're absolutely right. Like every kid on the base is in the same shoes, and they grow up with these kids, arguably only for a couple years at a time. But that is big. The one of the things that the fire on the fire service side, the fire departments exponentially busier. Today than it was when Jason and I started. Families are incredible. Feels like they're way busier. Just in my own personal family, I got three girls. They're going three different places for three different Mm -hmm. times. There's like very rare that we're like, hey, it's Saturday, we have nothing to do. Let's just all, you know, find some other fire families and hang out. Like that doesn't happen Mm -hmm. in my life anyway. I don't know. You know, some people do, but I think as life gets busier, as our jobs get more complicated, as the kids' expectations grow that's not happening. And that is definitely something that we could make a focus and, and try to foster. Because in fact, we had a, a gal, Tiffany Atala, she's a, a therapist and a firefighter wife. And she. this was one of her big pushes is reconnecting the families to each other, when, especially when the husbands are gone, because it's so important. And I think we as a, as a society of firefighters and we're drifting farther and farther away from that. And Jason, I know you got a, you got family and this is kind of near and dear to your heart. I've heard you talk about it before, but what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, life gets more expensive as the kids get older usually. And then life just because um, inflation just generally. So a lot of the times now spouses work. Like you said, the military's 1950s way of looking at things. That's still kind of society. And I think firefighters for the most part um, are expected that the wives can stay home when you're gone for 48 hours plus at a time. And that's just not really the case. That's not present day reality. So that again, goes back to what you're saying before about have a, have a group, have a community of families that will help each other out. One of the is about being a firefighter versus military is that you don't move. As a firefighter, I'd I'd say that's a plus and a negative. You don't move. And also you can't move because once you're in a fire department, that's usually where you stay for 30 (laughs) years. So you are afforded the ability to make a community and to stay with those people that are in your community, you know, for a long period of time, as opposed to what you're going through, where every few years you got to kind of start over. Um, I'm really interested in having kids on the podcast. And hearing their points of views and, and, you know, probably older kids, but I, I'd love to hear kind of what, what goes on in their brain when they see mom and dad go away for a shift for two days. Same with the military. I'd love to hear the kids' perspective on what's going on when they go, okay, bye, dad. And it's a year or seven months. I mean, man, that's got to be tough, especially as mm-hmm. your, as your kids get to be a little bit older, young teenagers. And I know one of the best times in my life was taking, all the events that my kids did every Saturday, I would take all those events off for the year. And that was really cool to be able to have that time with them. I'm, I'm glad I was able to do that with them, but just to be able to connect and support them. Um, I'd like to ask you about your new book that you said it's now been in stores, what, almost a year called Open When?
2: Yep. It's called Open When, Letters of Encouragement for Military Spouses. It's my first traditionally published book. So that one's very exciting. It's available on Amazon and through military family books. But the reason I wrote that one is because uh, we were going through a deployment. And there's a tradition in the military community that you know we don't always have communication when the service member is away. You can't just call when you want. They can't always call when they want. And so uh, going back probably who knows how many wars, it became a tradition for spouses to leave letters stuffed into the sea bags or into their backpacks when they leave that are called open when letters. And it might say open when it's your birthday or open when it's Christmas or open when you really miss me. And it would provide just a short message that they really need to hear in that moment so that they always had a way to get the support that they needed. And I've, I've done that for my husband and it's a great tradition, but I really wondered, you know, who's writing open when letters for the spouses? Where do mm-hmm. they get those moments of encouragement and support? What can they open when they really need it? And so I wrote all of these letters to the reader, to the spouses. It's, you know, open when you are facing a move that you don't want to do or open when you have to tell the kids about deployment. Like, how do I do this? How do I face this? And it's just like sitting down and having a cup of coffee with a good friend who's going to say, okay, you know what? I get where you're coming from. This sucks. It's really hard, but you know, here's something that worked for me and, and this might work for you too. And I've also heard you could do this, this and this. So let's, let's do that and let's do it together and let's make this work for you and, and help you take that next step forward. So it is just. Those little moments of encouragement that I think we all need at some point or another. And people find so much reassurance knowing, first of all, that I'm not in this situation on my own. I've had readers who have told me that, you know, they're just having a really tough day with the kids and they just like collapsed and sat down on the bedroom floor and opened up one of my letters about solo parenting with kids. And they were like, oh, this is what I needed to hear right (laughs) today. And like, I'm not the only mom that's facing this. I'm not the only spouse going through this. And just knowing that like these emotions are normal. These challenges are normal. You're totally allowed to feel that way. And I want to meet you in that moment in those feelings and help you take the next step forward.
1: Yeah. That sense of community again. I like that. That's, that's really neat.
2: Absolutely.
0: I think it, I think it's awesome that, um, I mean, you couldn't be more relatable to a military spouse, right? Like you've lived it, breathed it for 20 some years and you're clearly like really good at communicating and all of the things that you're doing, which I think is awesome. Um, we found in our foundation, like the best feedback, the best response we get from our spouses in general is when we bring in people who get them. Right. Mm -hmm. So we brought in Dr. O's is a a spouse who's also a, a therapist and she did a full seminar, you know, in a room with all spouses to this day, they're like, "Bring her back. We want more because she gets them." And I, it's not even that she, you know, had these never-before-heard-of strategies to cope with the struggles. Like that's not the case. Like for the most part, people know what they should do, like self-care and talk to someone, and all those things. That's not the mm-hmm. like the hard part. The hard part is connecting with people who understand you. And I, I, I want to commend you because that's what you do. And and even though you don't have anything to do with the fire service it's the same. For the most part, it's identical. Uh, You know, the struggles might be a little bit different. But what you're saying, like resonates with me completely. And I think that our spouses, when they listen to this podcast, are going to feel the same way. Um, So kudos to you for that.
2: Thank you. Yeah, that's why the book is focused on emotions. Because, I mean, my husband's a Marine. So when I talk to even just an army spouse or a Navy spouse, I mean, our, our vocabulary might be a little bit different, our life experiences might Mm -hmm. not quite line up. But you know what, we have both gone through the experience of being lonely and, and missing someone or struggling. Yeah. And those feelings are universal. And I think that's why there's so much overlap between the first responder communities and the yeah. military spouse community, because those emotions are universal.
0: Yeah. One one question. Do you have any in, in all your work that you do, do you have any experience working with the men who are the spouses of the service member a little bit like the, the wife, the wife is in the military. How is that different or similar? Or what, what's your I just out of curiosity, because we have the fire service is dominated by men, but there are women. And yes, it's just different. So just curious for what your assessment of that is.
2: Yeah, the military spouse community, it is still, I think, over 90% women who are the spouses, um, some of them married to women, some of them married to men, but, I mean, it is it is a very predominantly, um, especially in the Marine Corps, you know, heteronormative marriages and lifestyles. So, in the other branches, you see a lot more diversity, a, a lot more different types of relationships in marriage. But, yes, the military spouses who are men are always marginalized. They're always feeling left out. Um, I've been very intentional in my work and my writing to use the term spouse instead of wife because mm-hmm. that's who it is. Um, again my letters are you know written to meet people in emotions and i've had male readers who have reached out to me and said thank you so much for writing this because you know i was going through this and didn't know how to vocalize it or or explain it so i think there has been a shift maybe in the last 5 to 10 years for the military community to kind of recognize that a there's male spouses out there and b they need resources too but it, there's a long way to go and and i think they are going to continue to feel kind of the minorities and, and left out of a lot of things until there's more representation in the community for them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe it's an opportunity for a male spouse to, to create a community kind of like you did, but this has been great. I, any other, anything that you wanted to touch on that you think would be helpful for our spouses that we didn't quite get to,
2: the last tip I wanted to leave you with is something that really helped for a lot of my spouses. Um, we talked about the uncertainty and the unpredictability of this lifestyle. And one thing that I learned during deployments was that when you are surrounded by that those fearful moments, those moments of just insecurity and, and complete inability to control what's going on with my uh, spouse who's not there, you know, that it helps to latch on to something that you can control. So whether that is a small area of the house that, you know, the rest of the house might be a disaster and I haven't done the dishes or the laundry, but like this corner, this corner is neat and clean and this is my spot and it helps me feel relaxed when I look at it. That can be very grounding, um, having, you know, a designated room or a space, whatever it is, uh, latching onto a hobby that you can control and pick up and and start and stop on your own time, like, you know, knitting or reading a book or something like that, that you don't have to get a babysitter and, and clear out space on the calendar. Just having those moments throughout the day that you can control. And I've heard from a mental health perspective that that is a really good strategy for dealing with the stress and the uncertainty of this lifestyle. So I hope all of your listeners have some of those things that they control and hold on to. But if they don't yet, I encourage them to seek them out.
0: Yeah, all good tips. Jason, any, any parting words? No, I would just say
1: that um, the book Open When, available on Amazon, we'll try to get those that linked in our show notes too. And I think that would be something that um, we could have a stack of as a foundation and go, this person needs it, or even just give it out to the new spouses. That's something that would be really, really cool. And I'm sure it would be very relatable and, and helpful to, to the firefighters as well. I agree with Peter what you're saying resonates with us and our families as well. And, you know, we could be pretty much talking the same language and and saying the same stuff from the military and the firefighter side. So I appreciate you coming on and taking your time out of your day.
2: Absolutely. I'm so thrilled to support your families any way that I can and happy to provide you some links to the book and and a discount. If you want to get a a bulk order, that'd be amazing. Um, And I'm happy to come and speak to your spouses sometime too, if they could use a speaker, Again, I don't relate to every detail of the life, but I do relate to a lot of the things that they've been through.
0: Yeah. In that light, if our if our spouses want to find out more about what you're doing or how can they keep kind of connected with you, what's the best way for them to do that?
2: Yeah. My website is seasonedspouse.com uh, that you can read my blog there. You can book me as a speaker there. Uh, all my information and my books and downloads are available there as well on social media, on Facebook and Twitter, I'm Season spouse. And on Instagram, it's the Season spouse. So feel free to connect with me and look me up there.
0: Awesome. Lizanne, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate you spending time and sharing what you've shared. I think it's going to be helpful for sure. But yeah, we will make sure we link everything below. And hopefully we can chat with you again sometime in the future.
2: Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Thanks again.
0: Jason, wow, that was, a, that was a great conversation. It didn't even matter that she was from the military community, that the information was totally relevant and applicable to, to the fire service. What did you think?
1: Yeah, it was actually much more relevant than I thought it would have been. And I think um, I personally kept scribbling notes about how she could have been a firefighter wife. She said so much of the same stuff that we heard from Tiffany in the past, that uh, Minda talked about in the past. Uh, that we heard from um, Ashley, uh, Ashley Iverson. Yeah, thank you. In the past. So yeah, it was really cool. And one of the things she kept talking about, which I can relate to is stabilizing or destabilizing. That was such a military word. And she kept repeating it. And I go, that's I thought to myself, that's a great way of taking some of that emotion out of it. And just saying it is what it is. Is this a stabilizing event where your husband is going to be there? Or is it a destabilizing event where now you're going to have some time away and some loneliness, but you know, it's
0: all rel- It's all uh, relatable. Like you said. Yeah. She was awesome. It sounds like she does some speaking. So you never know. Maybe we, we put some sort of foundation conference together one day and bring a, bring her and some of the other people we've had to speak that, that, that could, I could see that being interesting. I'm interested in her book. I'm going to go see if I can find it on audible and listen to it, but she definitely had some, some good things to say. Let's just do a little housekeeping. So we have the Firefighter Ball coming up on April 21st, which it when this comes out will be a couple weeks away. I know that they're we're still looking for some sponsors, so if you're if you're interested in attending and sponsoring the ball, go to our website venturafirefoundation.org and there you'll find everything you need there. So definitely looking forward to that and and getting some support from the community as well. Are you going to are you going to go this year, Jason? Oh yeah, I'll be there. Um we haven't talked about bagpipes and I'm sure that'll be a part of it.
1: And, uh, I'm looking forward to it. Last year's was really fun and this is going to be our first or second year in a row. So we won't have as much backlogged stuff, but yeah, it's it last year was really fun. I'm looking forward to it again.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Likewise. Well, it's been a great, thanks for spending the time doing the podcast and hopefully everybody en- enjoys what Lizanne had to say.